Good morrow, friends. This is Jordan, and you're listening to Not Strictly History. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Not Strictly History. It is so, so great to be here with you today, as always. You know, I wasn't planning on saying this, but we're here now, so I'm going to say it. I, I just really love podcasting, okay? I do. I've wanted to start a podcast for a really long time. All of you guys know that. But I always think, like, no, I'm always afraid that when I start recording a new episode, I'll be like, OMG, this is the week I realize I hate it. And that never happens. Every week when I sit down to record an episode, I'm just more and more excited. And so every week when I say I'm excited to be here with you today, that's true because I'm always excited to be here with you today and to tell you the story that I've prepared for you. It's really exciting. So hello, everyone. I'm super excited to be here with you today. I hope that you really enjoyed last week's episode. It was our very first episode featuring a special guest, my younger sister, Josie, and we talked about the film Dirty Dancing. I had so much fun making that episode. So did Jose, and I just... Really, I really hope you guys enjoyed it. Please let me know. Josie is phenomenal. And as I told you guys last week, I have been waiting to have her on the podcast for a really, really long time. So it was super exciting to finally have her on. And we just had so much fun talking about Dirty Dancing with all of you because we've talked about it for years. So it was really, really fun to talk about it with all of you guys. So I hope that you enjoyed it. And I do have more um, guests planned in the future. So that's exciting stuff. And um, I probably won't tell you about them because I'm a weird person for surprises. So you'll just have to show up one day and realize we're getting another guest on the show. How about that? So there you go. I wasn't planning on saying pretty much any of that, but I'm excited to be here today. I hope you enjoyed our first guest on the show. And let's get into it because once again, This is a pretty intense, long story. I should probably just start like making a pre-recorded intro and being like, this is going to be our longest episode because I keep saying that. And then it kind of keeps being true, but I just keep outdoing myself, which is exciting. Um, Too bad it's not a more impressive record that I'm breaking. But anyway, I digress. So let's get into our story today. Today... I'm actually going to begin the episode by telling you some stories, or rather, by sharing some memories with you. So let's get into that. The first memory that I want to share with you, when I was really little, like really little, maybe like three, four, or five, the local Barnes & Noble was its own separate building um, in our town, and it was not the mall attachment that we normally see today. I swear to you guys... This building was huge. This building was huge. And it was much bigger and grander than whatever store has long since replaced it. I'm pretty sure that building is like a sporting goods store now, but that doesn't mean, that doesn't mean anything. Back in the day, this building was huge and it was very grand and beautiful. And when you walked into this store, the only thing you can you could see was just miles and miles of bookshelves you were completely surrounded by rich, dark wood, and the shelves were just towering above you, like 20 feet high, full of books. But it wasn't intimidating or scary. 
I remember walking into this store with my mother. Again, I was really, really small. And I distinctly remember how good it felt. I remember the smell. I remember the sounds. And I remember this sense of anticipation in the air. I remember that I was going to get a book that day. And I, it was just the most magical feeling. And oh, guys, I wish that I could truly explain to you what it felt like to have that new book in a crisp shopping bag. My mom carried it to the car and she handed me my new book on our drive home. And I can still remember what it smelled like. I can still remember the fact that I wasn't even really old enough to read the words yet. But this absolutely gorgeous, heavy book sat in my hands. The pages were super glossy and thick. It had its very own bookmark. The spine cracked when I opened it. I actually started to cry as I was writing down this memory. And I'm feeling a little emotional now. So it's the kind of memory that you don't really have words for. It's just so special. The next memory that I want to share with you when I was in middle school, our librarian was a very small, very frail older woman named Mrs. Schofield. And she always wore long dresses or skirts. Her hands were always like very manicured and soft. Each week on library day, we would file into the library and spend the first few minutes sitting in the tables near the door. And Mrs. Schofield would then spend a little bit of time showing us the new books that the library had acquired that week. She would flip open the pages, she would read us the book jackets, and then she would remind us how important it was to take very good care of the books in our library. After this little introduction, we were allowed to peruse the shelves and we would go find a book we wanted to read. We would go through the line and check it out, and then we would sit somewhere in the library and start reading until our hour was up and the teacher came to come get us. The library in my middle school was always really warm and cozy. And it was made more so, honestly, due to the fact that Mrs. Schofield was such a tiny little person and she always kind of had the heat up, but it was never in an uncomfortable way. I can still remember my favorite sections of the library. I could find them to this day. These sections where I went every week to find the books that I read and that impacted me so deeply that they are truly still a part of who I am today. The next the final memory that I want to share with you. When I lived in London, while I was receiving my master's degree in medieval studies, the library that my particular program was assigned to was the Mon Library. The Mon Library is on Chancery Lane, just down from the Course of Justice, by close to the Temple Tube Station, for any of you who are living in London. There is a slight incline in the street if you walk from the south, and somebody, I don't know why, somebody is always riding a rented bike past you as you approach the library. That's just the way that it is. There are tiny shops lining the street that you'll pass. And a kitty corner to the library on the north side is a pub called the Knights Templar. They serve not only Pepsi, which is a very, very rare thing to find on tap in London. And I have um, footage of me finding this out for the first time that I will not share, but it does exist. Um, but not only do they serve Pepsi on tap, but they also serve all of their food on gorgeous blue and white china. It's so beautiful. And there's a full suit of armor that stands above the bar, and all of the woodwork is this deep, beautiful chestnut color. 
But before you go take a load off the pub, you'll stop at the library. At the front gate, you'll see the red and white sign indicating that you are at an establishment affiliated with King's College London. When you walk through the gate, you'll pass under this wall of just, oh, it's just, it's so great. There's this wall of towering library with a tiny little tunnel through it, basically. There are booths to your right, and then you'll go into this absolutely stunning little courtyard. There's a place to chain up your bike, or you can sit on some benches under the shade of a tree. If you sit on those benches, you can look up at the library itself, which is an absolutely stunning stone building with beautiful stonework and stained glass. When with So you would go to the front door and with a scan of your student ID, and in my case, I usually waved to the security officer on duty, um, just to be nice, really, you can enter the library. And to your right, you'll find basically the pickup room. This is a place where for, in my case, a huge stack of books on Viking history that I had already re requested would be waiting for me. I would go in there, put this huge stack of books in my tote bag, and just be super excited to lug them all home. Couldn't wait. Further down that hall, though, there's private study rooms, and they're full of dark wood desks and more bookshelves. Just always, always more bookshelves. And it is stunning. To be completely honest with all of you, I am very surprised, as well as thoroughly impressed with myself, that I have made it this far in the episode without getting full-blown emotional, because while I was writing this episode, I was crying. In my office at work, on my, like, downtime, I was crying in my little cubicle writing this episode. <laughs> so there is actually a reason that I am sharing these very special memories with you today. There are a lot of reasons, and we are going to get around to them, but we're probably going to save you know, the deepest one for the end. One of the main reasons that I am sharing these memories with you today is because they are, as you noticed, probably, hopefully, very dear to me. It would not be an overemphasis at all to say that all of these memories hold a foundational place in my heart. Make They make up a lot of who I am as a person. And I'm also sharing with them with you because they obviously have a common theme. They are memories of my time in libraries or just my time with books. They are memories of my time in a place dedicated to literature, learning, and knowledge. These are only three of many, many memories that I have just like this. And since I am opening our episode today in this manner, I sincerely hope that you have similar memories with books or libraries in your life whether that's this huge library in London or one bookshelf on your grandma's home or just one book on your nightstand, I hope you have these memories. Because even if you don't love to read or don't fancy yourself a huge book buff, I am willing to bet that you have at least some kind of memory surrounding books or libraries. And today, my friends, we are talking about the ancient library of Alexandria. Now listen. You may or may not have heard about this great library, but trust me, by the end of today, you're going to have quite a bit of knowledge about this subject. Due to the nature of this story, and most stories, honestly, we'll stumble across a few other things to put our story together. So, get ready to put your thinking caps on, because it is time to go to ancient Egypt.
Now, I am willing to bet that for most of you crazy kids out there, you probably don't know a ton about the Library of Alexandria. Or, if you do, what you do know goes something like this. There was this huge, out-of-this-world phenomenal library in ancient Alexandria that held more knowledge than you can ever dream of. And one day, this huge, phenomenal, out-of-this-world library was lost due to a fire. This library was burned to the ground in one blaze of utterly devastating loss, and we'll never know the mysteries that it contained. Does this sound familiar to any of you? Well, if it does, I have to be the one to tell you that this thing you thought you knew is, in fact, a complete myth and not true at all. And I know, I know, I know, I know, WTF, then why do all of us think that the Library of Alexandria just went up in flames one day and lost all of the knowledge of everything? And if that didn't happen, then what did happen? All very valid questions. Well, lucky for you guys, I anticipated that you would ask me these questions. So I have as many of the answers as I could possibly find for you. Don't you even worry. But... As is very often the case in the study of history, it is a lot more complex than you think. You know, we talked about this in the beginning of our Boston Tea Party episode. A lot more goes into anything than you're ever taught in school. That's the truth. So we have to start at the very beginning and slowly put the various pieces together into the most cohesive, coherent picture that can be formed. This is how being a historian works Yes, but it is particularly important in this case. I'll probably say that with every case, but I digress. But if you'll remember, we are going all the way back to ancient Egypt. And because of this, the records that we have are not fabulous. So you have to be even more picky about what you're piecing together, essentially. And this is why I can say to you guys that I have done my very best to get you all of the answers that you're now clearly seeking. But you may still leave here today with questions, and that is fine. I actually hope that that is the case with all of my episodes, that you leave with questions or curiosities, because I don't want you guys to always take my word as complete fact. If I talk about something that interests you or I don't answer a question that you have, please go look into it some more. That's what makes a good historian. It's really, really important. Again, I digress. So as I said before, we have to start at the very beginning and put the pieces of what we do have together in order to form the clearest possible picture. And in order to, to do that in this case, we have to start with a man by the name of Alexander the Great. Now, you've probably heard of our good old friend Alex, and while we're not here to specifically talk about him, he does have a semi-important role to play in our story, so we have to talk about him for just a second. The city of Alexandria was founded in 330 BC by Alexander the Great. And just like a million other cities in his empire, it was named after him. Very original. The city of Alexandria was once a small fishing village on the Nile Delta, and it grew from this into what many scholars claim to be the greatest, the greatest city of the ancient world, which is beyond impressive. Alexander the Great died seven years after founding Alexandria in 323 BC. And when this happened, 
his vast empire was left in the hands of his top generals. A man by the name of Ptolemy I took Egypt. Well, here's the thing. Actually, we're not going to go into that. I'm just going to, we need to focus, okay? Ptolemy I took Egypt and he made this city of Alexandria his capital in 320 BC, which is a pretty big deal because what was once this small fishing village is now the seat of the Ptolemaic dynasty and would eventually become one of the world's greatest intellectual and cultural centers. So it's a pretty big deal, guys, that he just decided, hey, this is my new seat of power. Great, great, great stuff going on. Um, so let's talk about Ptolemy the first. Well, and Ptolemy the second. The main rulers that you need to remember for our purposes today are Ptolemy the first and his son, Ptolemy the second, who, if you combine their reigns together, ruled Egypt from 323 BC to 246 BC, a total of 77 years. So there's a lot happening. As we just discussed, Ptolemy I was the immediate successor of Alexander the Great in Egypt, and this guy was truly something, really. Reportedly, Ptolemy I was Alexander the Great's best friend and possibly half-brother, question mark. Listen, I smell propaganda from a mile away. There's like, I mean, maybe, but honestly, probably not. This was probably just a little story meant to give more legitimacy legitimacy to the Ptolemaic dynasty, for real. But I digress. We do know that he was one of Alexander the Great's best friends. And not only was he one of his top generals and later a king and all of that, but he was also a historian. Ptolemy I wrote an eyewitness history of Alexander the Great's various campaigns that is very unfortunately lost to us now. But for a long time, this history was used by other scholars as a primary source. And it was considered an objective work that was very distinguished by its straightforward honesty and sobriety, which is not a thing that you often get in an eyewitness account, really. Another important thing to remember about Ptolemy I is that even though he is now the ruler of Egypt, ya boy is Greek. And what do you suppose this means? Well, first and foremost, it means that now he has got a lot of cultures to contend with and a lot of mixing to do. Really. Ptolemy I, along with all of the other Greek kings who began to rule Egypt and the Near East, wanted to promote Hellenistic or basically Greek culture throughout the known world. Also, Alexander the Great's many, many campaigns resulted in, quote, a considerable addition of empirical knowledge of geography. Essentially, the reports that Alexander the Great acquired survived long after his death, and these reports, they just motivated this, how do we say, it was just this really unprecedented curiosity, to be example, to be, wow, I was gonna, you know what, that doesn't matter. It motivated this unprecedented curiosity, and um, people were just, wanted to know about science and the study of Earth, and natural qualities and and people it was just this time when people were moving things were happening and everybody just wanted to know things so this is the kind of man that Ptolemy the first was and the kind of atmosphere and environment that he had already been a part of and obviously wanted to continue in his new role as king Ptolemy the first was also known as a shrewd and cautious man when he died at the age of either 84 or 85 
crazy, right? He left behind him a compact and very well-ordered kingdom, which is saying so much when you're taking over a conquered kingdom. He was also known for his liberality and good nature. He had the complete loyalty of the soldier class. And a lot of the natives really, really liked him as king, actually, which is also saying a lot. So with all of this information together, it probably doesn't surprise you that Ptolemy I was also a great man of letters and a supporter of the arts, which brings us to the Library of Alexandria. But full disclosure, my friends, the details are pretty murky. I attempted to say this earlier, but I think it got lost in a rant. The details are murky, okay, which is why we've got a lot of things to try to piece together. However, we can be pretty much positive that the founding of the Library of Alexandria is connected to a man by the name of Demetrius of Phalerum. Who is this man? Thank you for asking. He was an exiled Athenian statesman living in, in Alexandria at the court of Ptolemy I. He was a member of the Peripatetic School. He was a student of Aristotle. His fall from power in Athens was probably not what he was expecting in his life, is it ever? But anyway, he sought refuge in Alexandria at the court of Ptolemy I, and he became his advisor. Now, many believe that it was he, Demetrius, who came up with the idea to establish a library in Alexandria. Others say that it was Ptolemy himself who quickly realized that Demetrius had this incredibly wide and versatile knowledge of so many things, and he therefore charged him with the founding of the library. It's really neither here nor there. The idea for the library was born about 295 BC. But this is not just any library, my friends. This is a universal library. They envisioned a library that would eventually house a copy of every single book in the world, an institution that would rival those of all other great cities. And all I have to say about that is, where do I sign? This brings us to Ptolemy II. If you'll remember, Ptolemy I's son, also very important. It is agreed by pretty much every scholar on this subject that Ptolemy I basically laid the groundwork for the Library of Alexandria, but that the institution itself probably didn't come into physical being until the reign of Ptolemy II, which makes sense because making, building an institution like this is a really huge undertaking. It's a really big deal. So we need to talk about Ptolemy II since he's a major player here. Ptolemy II was known as quote, sibling lover, because yes, he married his full sister, Arsinoe II. And let's talk about this for a second. Obviously, marrying your full sibling is a very, very normal thing to do if you are Egyptian royalty, okay? However, since he was Greek and there was a lot of Greeks in this kingdom, they were not into it. The Greeks called, called it what it was, incestuous and shocking. However, it is important to note that this marriage may never have been consummated because they had no children, and both of them had children from other marriages, so it's not necessarily an infertility issue. Let's just hope it was never consummated. I'm going to live in that realm. That's where I choose to be. You may join me if you wish. One cool thing about their marriage, though, is that they shared all of their royal titles, meaning that Arsinoe was known as a king slash pharaoh, which is very Hatshepsut of her. We will talk about Queen, King, Hatshepsut, 
some other time. Look into it if you want. Besides Ptolemy II's marriage, though, there are other things about him that we need to understand. It was primarily during his 38-year reign that the material and literary splendor of the Alexandrian court was at its height. So not only did he most likely create the institution of the Library of Alexandria, but he either helped to either create or at least promote another institution that was closely linked with the library. Which brings us to a little thing called the museum. Now listen, the museum. It was actually called the Museon, Museon, which is a Greek word meaning house of the muses. Museum is the same word in Latin. And yes, this is where we get our modern term for museum. Here's the thing. I'd really like to call it the Museon throughout this episode because that's what they called it. But every time I see this word, because of the way it is spelled, I want to pronounce it Mauseon. And that's just not correct. So I'm going to save all of us a little bit of trouble. And I'm just going to use the Latin term and call it the museum. But just know that since there was Greek happening, they called it the Museon. Okay, thank you. So what was it? The museum was a shrine complex modeled on the Lyceum of Aristotle of Athens. It was essentially a center for intellectual and philosophical lectures and discussions. You guys, it was pretty much university. Okay, let's be real. But it was to be the first part of the library of com the library complex at Alexandria, and it was located within the grounds of the royal palace in an area known as the Palace Quarter in the Greek district of the city of Alexandria. The museum was this cult center with shrines for each of the nine muses, but again, it also functioned as a place of study. It had lecture areas, laboratories, observatories, botanical gardens, it even had a zoo. It had living quarters and it had dining halls, as well as the Library of Alexandria itself. Essentially, the museum was a much larger research, in, research institution that the Library of Alexandria was affiliated with, attached to, etc., however you want to say that. And again, it was dedicated to the muses, the nine goddesses of the arts. Both of the, the museum and the library were built in the royal quarter of the city, again, close to the royal palace, which meant they were in direct supervision of the kings. And as such, to be completely honest, the main purpose of the library slash museum whole thing, it was really to show off the wealth of Egypt, and research was definitely a lesser goal. Although this research and the contents of the library did was very useful to the ruler of Egypt for a lot of reasons, so that is important. However, keep in mind that the museum is dedicated to the muses, to goddesses, which therefore makes the museum a religious institution. So it was actually directed by a priest of the muses known as an epis epistates. I should have looked this up. I'm trying really hard with my Greek today, guys. And this man was appointed by the king, just like the other priests who directed Egyptian temples. Some of what we know about the museum comes from a Greek geographer named Strabo. Strabo? Strabo? Whatever. I love you. We're going to talk about him quite a bit. But anyway, he was studying in Alexandria around 20 BC. Granted, this is quite a while after the height of everything. It is. But his records are still very, very important. He said, quote, 
The museum is a part of the palaces. It has a public walk and a place furnished with seats and a large hall in which the men of learning who belong to the museum take their common meal. This community possess also property in common and a priest formerly appointed by the kings, but at present by Caesar, presides over the museum. So when it comes to the Library of Alexandria and the museum and how they were connected and worked together, there's a lot there. But they also functioned separately, which is equally important. For example, the library eventually was able to make copies of books for various clients around the world, which brought quite a bit of revenue into the city, as you can imagine. So it was because of the library that the museum was able to maintain scholarship at the highest level in almost all areas of learning. In fact, much later in the first century AD, a scholar by the name of Vitruvius expressed gratitude that was felt by the subsequent generations for the work of their predecessors in preserving the quote, memory of mankind. Hence, we must render to them indeed the greatest thanks because they did not all go in jealous silence, but provided for the record in writing of their ideas of every kind, end quote. Dude's basically saying, thanks for not letting your ego get in the way and being good scholars, which I agree wholeheartedly. And that's really beautiful, but let's recenter a little bit. I just had to share it with you. Let's dive more into the reason that we're here, the Library of Alexandria itself. So remember how our new kings are actually Greek. And because of this, they had a vested interest in both collecting and compiling information from both their fellow Greeks as well as more ancient kingdoms in the Near East. A practical way to do this sort of thing is obviously by establishing an archive or a library. Libraries at this time did a lot of different things. They enhanced a city's prestige, they attracted scholars, and they also provided practical assistance in ruling or governing a kingdom. We talked about that a teeny bit. Thus, Every major Hellenistic urban center eventually had a royal library. Okay, they were a big deal. So clearly, the Library of Alexandria was not the first library of its kind. As we just discussed, there is this long history of libraries in Greece and in the nearby Eastern kingdoms. In fact, the earliest recorded archive of written materials comes from an ancient Sumerian city-state named Uruk in around 34 BC, when writing had only just begun to develop. This is what this means, friends. It means that libraries have existed pretty much as long as writing has, which is so cool. And scholarly curation of literary texts began around 2500 BC, which means that scholarship has existed for almost as long, which is so cool. And I'm geeking out a little bit. It's okay. So later kingdoms and empires of the Near East also had long traditions of book collecting, as we've talked about. The ancient Hittites and Assyrians had massive archives containing records written in many, many different languages. But it was actually this mixed heritage and history of all these different kinds of libraries in all of these different places that birthed the idea for the Library of Alexandria. And never fear, I have an answer for the question. I can hear you screaming at me, okay? If the Library of Alexandria wasn't this new thing or some wildly different idea, then why is it so important? Well, I will tell you, the Library of Alexandria was unprecedented because of the scope and the scale of the ambitions of the Ptolemaic kings. 
Unlike their predecessors and their contemporaries, the Ptolemies wanted to create a repository of all knowledge. Not only were they well positioned to do this because Egypt had lots of papyrus happening, but they also had the resources to make something like this happen, okay? It wasn't just a pipe dream. The Library of Alexandria was such a big deal, not because it was a fancy library in a big city, okay? That had happened already. It was such a big deal because it wanted to house all of the knowledge in the world, all of the best knowledge, and the Ptolemaic kings went hard to make sure that this happened, okay? And, and oh, it's just so great. So how did our Ptolemaic kings grow our library? I'm going to tell you. Keep in mind, they intended the Library of Alexandria to be a collection of all knowledge, so they adopted a very aggressive and well-funded policy to make this happen. They dispatched royal agents, many royal agents, with large amounts of money who were under strict orders to purchase and or collect as many texts as they possibly could about any subject and by any author. Older copies of texts were favored over newer ones, um, which makes sense because it was then automatically thought that older copies of works had undergone less copying and so they therefore were more likely to more closely resemble what the original author had written. The Library of Alexandria was super into original copies, and I get it. This both, this, I mean, this both makes sense, right? It, it makes sense they want older original copies, but it also makes it so that they're going to be spending more money for older copies of things, which is why this had to be a very well-funded program. This program of book buying and book collecting also involved the royal agents visiting book fairs in Rhodes and Athens. Because yeah, that was a thing. People just, there were book fairs in ancient Rhodes and Athens and people were just going there to buy books. It's incredible. And we could spend a long time on that, but we're not going to because we need to focus. So the truth of the whole thing though, is that this is not the only way that the Ptolemaic kings got books for the Library of Alexandria. A Greek medical writer named Galen said that by order of Ptolemy II, any books that were found on ships that came into port in Alexandria were taken to the library where they were copied by official scribes. The original texts were kept in the library because remember, we're way into original texts. And the copies were then delivered back to the owners along with monetary compensation. The library particularly focused on acquiring manuscripts of the Homeric poems, which were obviously the foundation of Greek education and revered above all other poems. We're talking about the Iliad and the Odyssey, okay? Big deal. Therefore, the library acquired many different manuscripts of these poems, and they tagged each copy with a label to indicate where it had come from. They were not messing around, okay? In addition to collecting these works from the past, the museum and the library also served as home to a host of international scholars, poets, philosophers, and researchers who, according to our friend Strabo, I looked it up, that's how you say it, were provided with a large salary, free food and lodging, and exemption from taxes. That's right. That's right. I'm going to read it again louder for the people at the back. There were international scholars, poets, philosophers, and researchers who got a large salary, free food and lodging, and exemption from taxes. Because knowledge is important, my friends. And that's all I'm going to say about it. There also was 
a large circular dining hall with a high domed ceiling in which they all ate their meals communally. communally. So as far as the layout or the appearance of the Library of Alexandria goes, we really don't know because unfortunately there is no archeological evidence, which we'll get into later. But some of our ancient sources describe the Library of Alexandria as comprising a collection of scrolls, Greek columns, a room for shared dining, a reading room, meeting rooms, gardens, and lecture halls, essentially creating a model for the modern university campus. These lecture halls and classrooms existed because the scholars were expected to at least occasionally teach students, which I just love. According to classical scholar Lionel Casson, who will talk, who will reference him a lot, the idea of this was that if the scholars were completely freed from the burdens of everyday life, they would be able to devote more time to research and intellectual pursuits, which is very true. Strabo called this group of scholars who lived at the museum and the library a community. And as early as 283 BC, they may have numbered between 30 and 50 scholars, scholars, which is so great. So one really important thing to remember about the Library of Alexandria was that it was not affiliated with any particular philosophical school. And because of this, scholars who studied there had a huge amount of academic freedom. They were still subject to the authority of the king, but essentially they could study anything they wanted because the goal of the library was really just to acquire knowledge, right? Which is so important. The library itself was directed by a scholar who served as head librarian, as well as a tutor to the king's son. My absolute favorite part of the things we know about the Library of Alexandria is this. There was apparently a very large hall containing shelves that held all of these collections of papyrus scrolls. And according to a very popular legend, there was an inscription above the shelves that read, quote, the place of the cure of the soul, which is absolutely what libraries should be and definitely reminds me of my many memories that I have with books. The place of the cure of the soul. Now, I, I'm not sure where we get that beautiful little anecdote, but it is beautiful. We do, however, need to talk about a source that we do have about the Library of Alexandria that is very important. The earliest known reference to the Library of Alexandria is in a letter from a man named Aristius to his brother Philocrates. There is a lot of um, debate about when this letter was created. I found sources that all say third or second or first century BC. Although I did find a very, very wonderful website all about the Library of Alexandria that I will be linking because it's, it's just incredible and very scholarly and very credible. This website says it was the first century BC. So that's what we're gonna be sticking with. But some scholars say that this letter is pseudepigraphic, meaning that it is either attributed to the wrong person or it is attributed to a past writer by a more modern writer. Now, there was a scholar by the name of Josephus. He was a Jewish, Jewish historian in the first century AD, and he is the one who says that this letter was by Aristius to his brother Philocrates. But Josephus also paraphrases about two-fifths of the letter, which is, you know, it's a little iffy, which makes sense that which 
because of this, it makes sense that a lot of scholars say that this letter is actually a work of fiction. However, if it is in any way real, it is, again, the earliest text to mention the Library of Alexandria. This letter deals primarily with how and why Hebrew law was translated into Greek. Let's talk about a little bit more modern scholar by the name of Humphrey Hody. He lived in 1659 and through 1706, so a while ago for us, but again, much more modern. And he says that this letter was written closer to 170 or 130 BC, which I'm loving this timeline. It was the Josephus guy who said third century or second century. He's the one that I'm thinking might not be very credible, okay? I'm totally here for Humphrey Hody, though. I am. A lot of people say that the this letter is, quote, Jewish propaganda in pagan disguise, and that, quote, it's directed to a pagan reader in order to make propaganda for Judaism among the Gentiles. It was essentially to them about a pagan king who recognizes the significance of Jewish scripture and thus has them translated. It's this whole thing and honestly very important to this, to the history of Judaism and paganism and, and all of that. But how does this apply to the Library of Alexandria? I'll tell you, there is a pretty big part of this letter that talks about the Library of Alexandria and it is very important. However, because there's a lot we don't know about this letter, it's, it's definitely taken with a grain of salt, semi-relied upon. Scholars who are avid for the scant information that we do have about the library and the museum have depended upon this Aristius, who, quote, has that least attractive quality in a source to be trusted only where corroborated with better evidence and they're unneeded. Now, that was a quote by the scholar Roger Bagnall, which is salty and wonderful, and I love it. But here's the thing, okay? Whatever your opinion is on the strict accuracy of this letter, it is still one of our most important sources when it comes to the Library of Alexandria. So I'm going to read you a quote from it. Quote, Demetrius of Phalerum, the president of the King's Library, received vast sums of money for the purpose of collecting together, as far as he possibly could, all of the books in the world. By means of purpose of purchase and transcription, he carried out to the best of his ability the purpose of the king. He was asked how many thousands of books are there in the library, and he replied, More than 200,000, O king, and I shall make an endeavor in the immediate future to gather together the remainder also, so that the total of 500,000 may be reached. I just love it. I want this letter to be real so bad, guys, it, as you can probably tell. I just, th that's probably a story for another time. So, although we have this information from the letter of Aristius, it's actually unknown how many scrolls the Library of Alexandria housed at any given time. But estimates range from 40,000 scrolls to 400,000 scrolls at its height, which is roughly 100,000 books. Because remember, one book could take up several scrolls. And this would have been a really big job, okay? Keeping all of the scrolls that made up one book together and cataloged correctly, it's a really big job. And also keep in mind that for the entire life of the Library of Alexandria, the collection consisted of papyrus scrolls. The library never switched to the use of parchment, probably because they were in Egypt and thus had strong links to the papyrus trade. 
So as you can probably imagine, the city of Alexandria quickly became regarded as the capital of knowledge and learning, in part because of this wonderful library. So it makes sense that this prestigious institution that houses thousands upon thousands of books needs a solid man at the helm. And if you'll remember from just a few minutes ago, the Library of Alexandria was in fact directed by a head librarian who was also a very accomplished scholar himself and often tutored the royal children. Therefore, the position of head librarian at the Library of Alexandria was very, very important and very, very prestigious. And as such, we really need to talk about our head librarians and some of their astonishing accomplishments. We also need to talk about them just because the story of the head librarians is really the story of the library itself in a lot of ways. So the very first recorded head librarian of the Library of Alexandria was Xenodotus of Ephesus, who lived in 325 to 270 BC. His main work was devoted to the establishment of the canonical texts of the Homeric poems and early Greek lyric poets. Most of what is known about this man comes from later commentaries that mention his preferred readings of particular passages and works. He is known to have written a glossary of rare and unusual words that was organized in alphabetical order, making him the very first person known to have employed alphabetical order as a method of organization, which is pretty neat. Since the collection at the library seems to have been organized alphabetically, but in order of the first letter of the author's name from very, very early, the scholar that we mentioned earlier, Casson, Lionel Casson, concludes that it is highly probable that is Xenodotus who was the one who organized it that way. Xenodotus' system of alph alphabetization, however, only used the first letter of the word. It didn't continue to go down the, the word as we do today. It was actually not until the second century AD that anyone is known to have applied the method of alphabetization to the remaining letters of the word like we do today. Meanwhile, the scholar and poet Callimachus, oh, friends, I'm so sorry. He's great. I don't know how to pronounce his name, but he's great. He, he created a work called the Panakis or Panakis. I'm going to stop and do some research. Pardon me. Okay, I um, am able to tell, to um, be honest about when I'm an idiot. <clears throat> it is Callimachus, and he wrote a work called the Pinox, okay? And it was a 120 book catalog of various authors and all of their known works. Tragically, this work has not survived. However, enough references to it and fragments of it have survived to allow scholars to reconstruct its basic structure. So this work was divided into multiple sections, each containing entries for writers of a particular genre of literature. The most basic division was between writers of poetry and writers of prose, with each section divided into smaller subsections. Each section listed authors in alphabetical order, and each entry included the author's name, their father's name, their place of birth, and other brief biographical information, sometimes including nicknames by which that author was known, and it was followed by a complete list of all of that author's known works. 
The fragments of this work attest to the following divisions. Rhetoric, law, epic, tragedy, comedy, lyric poetry, history, medicine, mathematics, natural science, and miscellaneous works. Callimachus did his most famous work at the Library of Alexandria, but he never held the position of head librarian there, which is a little sad, but it's okay. To be completely honest, I am just horrified and I mean horrified is not the right word I'm just sad I'm overwhelmingly sad that this Panox this work he made didn't didn't last until today do you know how freaking awesome it would be if we had this work intact I mean to have all of that information about all of these authors that would be so cool that would be so cool I'm gonna say it again that would be so cool Okay, let's move on. So remember, at this time, our head librarian is Xenodotus, and after he either died or retired, Ptolemy II appointed Apollonius of Rhodes as our second head librarian, and he lived um, about 295 to 215 BC. He was a native of Alexandria and a student of Callimachus, which is good because we love him. He was also the tutor of Ptolemy II's son, Ptolemy III. Apollonius is best known as the author of the Argonautica, which is an epic poem about the voyages of Jason and the Argonauts, which has survived to the present in complete form. Many of you may have read it. It's really important. This is, oh my goodness, it's just so great. This poem, it displays Apollonius's vast knowledge of history and literature, and it really alludes to this huge array of events and texts while simultaneously Im imitating the style of the Homeric poems. It's a huge undertaking, this poem is, and it's so great. Some fragments of Apollonius's scholarly writing have survived, but honestly, he is still better known as a poet. According to legend, however, during the librarianship of Apollonius of Rhodes, the mathematician and inventor Archimedes, know him, he came to visit the library. And during his time in Egypt, it is said that he observed the rise and fall of the Nile, leading him to invent the Archimedes screw, which can be used to transport water from low-lying bodies into irrigation ditches. He later returned to Syracuse and continued inventing. Pretty neat. So, eventually, Apollonius of Rhodes resigned because Ptolemy III became king in 246 BC. Even though he was his tutor, apparently they didn't actually get along. I, I actually think there was like a brother issue who wanted to get the throne and, and all of that, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, he had to resign. Our third head librarian, Eratosthenes of Cyrene, lived 280 to 194 BC. And he is best known today for his scientific works, even though he was also a literary scholar. His most important work was his treatise, Geographica, which was originally three volumes. This work has also not survived, but many fragments of it are preserved through the quotations and writings of Strabo. See, we love this guy. He's so great. But this head librarian, Eratosthenes, he is the very first scholar ever to apply mathematics to geography and map making. Get this, my friends. He calculated the circumference of the earth. He just ran, 
this, oh my gosh, it's so cool. He just decided one day, he woke up one day and said, hey, why don't I calculate the size of the earth? He calculated the circumference of the earth and he was only off by a few hundred kilometers. I would like you to try to do that in this day with only the information that he had and tell me how that goes for you. It's so cool. <clears throat> anyway, he also produced a map of the entire known world, which incorporated information taken from many of the sources that were held in the library. He was the very first person to advance geography towards becoming a scientific discipline all in itself. And he believed that the setting of the Homeric poems was purely imaginary, and he argued that the purpose of this poetry was to, quote, capture the soul rather than give a historically accurate account of the events, which I can, I can totally see. And um, he really inspired other scholars at the library to display interest in scientific subjects. There were also um, many scholars who were studying medicine and human anatomy at this time, for example. Now, let's, let me tell you a story. Because the story goes that around this time, Ptolemy III requested permission from the Athenians to borrow the original manuscripts of Aeschylus, Sophocles, and Euripides, for which the Athenians were demanded an enormous amount of collateral. Essentially, they were like, hey, okay, we will let you borrow the original manuscripts of some of our most famous scholars. And as collateral, we would like you to give us 15 talents, which is, my friends, 1,000 pounds of precious metal. And um, that way we'll know that you'll bring them back. And he was like, okay, cool. So Ptolemy III gave them 1,000 pounds of precious metal and promised to return these original manuscripts of these incredible philosophers. These manuscripts come to the Library of Alexandria. Ptolemy III had very, very expensive copies of these, of the plays and the writings made on the highest quality papyrus. Like these, these copies were beautiful and again, very expensive. He then sent the Athenians these copies and told them to keep the talents. And he put all of the original works in the library. And this is just the biggest power move and drop the mic moment and any other phrase you could attach to it. It's incredible. It's, it's, it's wild. And we don't know if it's strictly true. It could also be construed erroneously to just show the power of Alexandria over Athens during the Ptolemaic dynasty. Nevertheless, it's really, really cool. It's just, it's, I just like that story. But this detail also arises from the fact that Alexandria was a man-made bi-directional port between the mainland and Pharos Island. It welcomed trade from the east and the west. That's a really fancy way of saying Alexandria was a hub of international trade. It was a lead producer of papyrus and soon enough books, okay? Alexandria was just a really big deal, my friends, okay? It just was. At this time, the Library of Alexandria just kept collecting books and kept expanding their collection. And as you can imagine, this made it so that eventually they ran out of room to store books. So again at this time, during the reign of Ptolemy III, a satellite location was created in the form of the Serapium of Alexandria. This was a temple of the Greco-Egyptian god Serapis, and it was located near the royal palace, so pretty close to the library itself. Again, it was a satellite, you know, 
what I'm, I'm stuttering. It was a satellite. Um, what is that word I'm looking for? I said collection. Collection works. Location. That's the word I'm looking for. Um, a satellite location. But for many centuries, the Serapium was actually referred to as the daughter library to the Library of Alexandria. Now, our fourth head librarian was Aristophanes of Byzantium. And he became head for the fourth head librarian sometime around 200 BC. And according to a legend recorded by Roman writer Vitruvius, Aristophanes was one of seven judges appointed for a poetry competition hosted by Ptolemy III. All six of the other judges favored one competitor, but Aristophanes favored the one that everybody liked the very least. And he declared that all of the poets, except for the one he had chosen, had committed plagiarism and were therefore disqualified. Ptolemy III demanded proof of this, and Aristophanes received the texts, retrieved the checks. Hmm. There's a lot of words happening. So the king demanded proof, and Aristophanes was like, bet. He ran to the library, and he gathered up all of the texts. He located them by memory and said, hey, here's the proof. They plagiarized. Due to his incredibly impressive memory and just knowledge in general, Ptolemy III then appointed him as head librarian. Again, this is just a story, but I'm into it. The librarianship of Aristophanes of Byzantium is widely considered to have opened a more mature phase in the Library of Alexandria's history. During this phase, literary criticism reached its peak. It came to dominate the library's scholarly output. Aristophanes himself edited poetic texts and introduced the division of poems into separate lines on the page, since they had previously all been written out just like prose. So we can thank Aristophanes for stanzas. Thank you, Aristophanes, for stanzas. He also invented a system of Greek um, criticism, really. He wrote important works on lexicography, and he introduced a series of signs for textual criticism. He wrote introductions to many different plays, some of which have survived partially or in rewritten, rewritten forms. I love Aristophanes. He's great. He was such a great head librarian. And it's really interesting because, again, he's the fourth head librarian. The fifth head librarian was a very, very obscure individual. He was also named Apollonius, just like our, who was that, second? Our second head librarian. But this guy, fifth head librarian, again, was very obscure. He is known by the epithet classifier of forms. One late lexico lexicographical source explains that he was called this, referring to the classification of poetry on the basis of musical forms. Again, there's not a lot known about this dude, so maybe he was just like, hey, let's classify poetry because it sounds like music. I don't know. During the early 2nd century BC, several scholars at the library studied works on medicine. Very, very important. Um, Zeusis, how the heck? Okay, there's this dude. He is credited with having written commentaries on the Hippocratic corpus, and he also actively, actively worked to procure medical writings for the library's collection, which is, again, very important because we are gathering information on scientific subjects as well. The scholar Ptolemy Epithets wrote a treatise on wounds in the Homeric poems, which is so cool. It's so cool. 
This subject straddles the line between traditional philology and medicine. This is such an important thing because he's taking this fictional, maybe, I don't know, at the time they probably didn't think it was fictional. However, he's taking this work that's literary and he's talking about it in a medical way, which is such a new thing for the time. And I would read this treatise so hard. I wish it still existed. That would be really cool. So a lot of really cool things are happening at this time. However, it is also during this time that the power of Ptolemaic Egypt began to decline, unfortunately. Uprisings among segments of the Egyptian population, it, they, they happened a lot. And um, it's just a lot of bad things were happening, essentially. The Ptolemaic ruler, rulers began to emphasize the Egyptian aspects of their nation over the Greek aspects. Consequently, many Greek scholars began to leave Alexandria for safer countries with more generous, generous patronages. And our sixth head librarian was Aristarchus of Samothrace. He earned a reputation as the greatest of all ancient scholars, which is incredible because, again, this is a declining moment for Alexandria, for the library, for the Ptolemaic dynasty. But this dude was insane, okay? Just absolutely insane, okay? He produced not only texts of classic poems and works of prose, but also a full, it's so cool, this long, just commentaries, these huge long commentaries on all of these ancient things. And these commentaries would cite, um, they would cite a specific passage of classical text. They would then explain its meaning, define any unusual words used in it, and then comment on whether the words in the passage, in the passages were really those that were used by the original author, or if they were later editions by scribes. Do you know how important this is? Okay, this is me geeking out like crazy over language, but like, this is so important. It really, really is. And it's so cool. He made many contributions to a variety of studies, but particularly the study of the Homeric poems, and his editorial opinions are widely quoted by ancient authors as um, authoritative, and a portion of one of his commentaries on the histories of Herodotus has actually survived as a papyrus fragment, which is so cool. Again, this guy is cool, okay? However, in 145 BC, he was caught up in a dynastic struggle where he, where he supported, excuse me, Ptolemy VII as a ruler of Egypt. However, Ptolemy VII was murdered and succeeded by Ptolemy VIII, who immediately set about punishing all those who had supported his predecessor, forcing our boy Aristarchus to flee Egypt and take refuge on the island of Cyprus, where he died shortly thereafter. But listen to this, okay? Ptolemy this, the um, eighth, excuse me, he then expelled all of the foreign scholars from Alexandria, forcing them to disperse across the eastern Mediterranean. He was like, hey, what if I just tell all the scholars to leave the Library of Alexandria? Imagine telling on yourself like that. So Ptolemy the eighth decides to expel all of the foreign scholars from Alexandria. And as you can probably imagine, this expulsion of scholars from the world's main center for learning 
brought about a little bit of a shift in the history of Hellenistic scholarship, to say the least. Scholars who had studied at the Library of Alexandria and their students continued to conduct research and to write treatises and do all of that stuff, but they weren't doing it in association with the Library of Alexandria, which is not good for the Library of Alexandria. So obviously, a movement of Alexandrian scholarship occurred in which these scholars dispersed throughout the Mediterranean. And this movement prompted the historian, Menides of Bars, to sarcastically comment that Alexandria had become the teacher of all Greeks and barbarians alike, which I'm sure that Ptolemy VIII loved. Hopefully he did, because it's his fault. Anyway, in Alexandria, from the middle of the 2nd century BC onwards, Ptolemaic rule in Egypt just continued to grow less and less stable. They were confronted with growing social unrest and other major political and economic problems. The later Ptolemies did not devote as much attention to the library and the museum as their predecessors had, probably because of civil unrest, but still. So because of all of this, the status of the library itself and also the status of the head librarian very much diminished. Several later Ptolemies used the position of head librarian as mere a, a, a political reward, essentially, um, to their most devoted supporters, which um, explain how that works. I mean, for example, Ptolemy VIII appointed one of his palace guards as head librarian. So, you know, I'd love to know how that worked out. Well, we do know how that worked out. But anyway, eventually, the position of head librarian lost so much of its former prestige that even contemporary authors at the time, they just ceased to take interest in recording terms of office for individual head librarians, which is very, very telling, honestly. Like, wow. Anyway, so remember this shift in Greek scholarship that we were talking about? Well, this happened in Alexandria, obviously, when Ptolemy expelled all the scholars, but it also happened across the Greek world around the turn of the first century BC. By this time, all major classical poetic texts had finally been standardized and extensive commentaries had already been produced on all of the writings of all of the major literary authors of the Greek classical era. Consequently, there was little original work for scholars to do with these ancient texts. So, especially um, in Alexandria, many scholars began, began producing syntheses and reworkings of the commentaries of scholars of previous centuries at the expense of their own originality, which is not good when you're a scholar, let me tell you. But the time has come, my friends, for us to talk about the thing, the reason that we're here, really. We need to talk about the destruction of the Library of Alexandria. We talked about this a little bit at the top of the episode, but the story that we hear today is that an infamous fire occurred. A terrible fire that completely destroyed the Library of Alexandria in one horrible blaze. And like I said at the beginning of the episode, this actually isn't true. The true story is actually a lot more tragic than just one blazing fire. We've been talking the last couple of minutes about how scholars were expelled from the library and how scholarship itself really started to shift. Well... Obviously, these scholars went elsewhere and scholarship continued. So what kind of impact do you suppose that this had on our library? 
Thank you for responding. The true story of the Library of Alexandria is actually a story about slow decline over a period of many centuries. In other words, we didn't lose the library because of some kind of horrific fire. We lost the library because it suffered from neglect and gradual decline until eventually it just didn't really exist anymore. And yes, we're going to dig into all of that pain, so don't you even worry about it. But we do need to address this fire issue. Because where did it come from? Why have we all been bebopping around thinking that the library was burned down? Well, the answer to that question, my friends, is a name. One name that we are pretty familiar with here on Not Strictly History, Julius Caesar. Yep, I might have known that this guy would come back and ruin more stuff. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, see Season 1, Episode 2. So, let's travel to 48 BC during Julius Caesar's Civil War, when he was besieged at Alexandria. He had his soldiers set fire to some of the Egyptian ships docked in the Alexandrian port while he was trying to clear the wharves to block the fleet belonging to Cleopatra's brother, Ptolemy Fourteenth. Fire spread to the parts of the city nearest the docks, causing considerable devastation, and we do know that this was a thing. The 1st century AD Roman playwright and Stoic philosopher Seneca the Younger quotes a different work as saying that the fire was started by Caesar and it destroyed 40,000 scrolls from the library, but not necessarily the library itself. However, the Greek middle Platonist Plutarch, we know him. We don't, well, we don't know him from this episode. We just know Plutarch and I'm not talking about Plutarch heavens be people. I'm talking about the real Plutarch. Anyway, he wrote in his life of Caesar that, quote, when the enemy endeavored to cut off his communication by sea, he was forced to divert that danger by setting fire to his ships, which, after burning the docks, thence spread on and destroyed the great library. The Roman historian um, Cassius Dio writes, many, quote, many places were set on fire with the result that, along with other buildings, the dockyards and storehouses of grain and books said to be great in number and of the finest were burned. However, other philosophers mentioned that the flames burned down the fleet itself and some, quote, houses near the sea. Scholars have interpreted Cassius Dio's wording to indicate that the fire probably did not actually destroy the entire library itself, but maybe a warehouse located near the docks that was being used by the library to house scrolls, which is, a, that's a fair interpretation, but Whatever dev devastation Julius Caesar's fire may have caused, the library was allegedly not completely destroyed. Evidence for this comes from our friend Strabo, who, if you'll remember, was studying in Alexandria in 20 BC, and he mentions visiting the museum. This was several decades after Julius Caesar's fire, indicating that it either survived the fire or it was rebuilt soon afterwards. However, Strabo's manner of talking about the museum shows that it was nowhere near as prestigious as, as it had been a few centuries before, which isn't shocking. Interestingly enough, though, despite mentioning the museum, Strabo does not mention the library itself specifically, perhaps indicating that it had been so drastically reduced in stature and significance that he felt it didn't even warrant separate mention and it is unclear what happened to the museum after Strabo's mention of it, which is very, very intriguing. 
Furthermore, our friend Plutarch records in his Life of Mark Antony that, in the years leading up to the Battle of Actium in 33 BC, Mark Antony was rumored to have given Cleopatra all of the 200,000 scrolls that were in the library of Pergamum. Plutarch notes that his source for this anecdote was slightly unreliable, and it's very possible that this story is probably just propaganda intended to show that Mark Antony was loyal to Cleopatra and Egypt rather than Rome. However, he did this presumably to restock Alexandria after Julius Caesar created this horrible thing that happened. This is a theory by scholar Edward J. Watts because Julius Caesar's fire occurred 15 years before. Maybe that Mark Antony's just like, hey, let me help you and we'll restock the library. But okay, the scholar Lionel Casson points out that even if this story was made up, it wouldn't have been believable unless the Library of Alexandria still existed. Which is, which is true. And yes, I am going to provide some context here because we have yet to talk about the Library of Pergamum that I just mentioned. And it is actually really important to the story of the Library of Alexandria, but because of the way that it is, all of this is, I just didn't put it in the episode earlier, so forgive me. But we're going to talk about it now. The Library of Pergamum was in um, Pergamon, Anatolia, and it was founded sometime in the 3rd century BC roughly one century after the Library of Alexandria. It was built by King Eumenes II between 220 and 159 BC. This city rose to prominence as an administrative center under this king. It was a wealthy, developing city, and it was culturally rivaled only by Alexandria and Antioch. According to our friend Plutarch, this library had 200 volumes in it. Although no index or catalog survives in any way, so there's really no way to know for sure. But we do know that it had four different rooms, and the largest room was the reading room. And interestingly enough, we also know that because of the way that the bookshelves were spaced, there was um, there was space for air circulation because it was very hot and humid there. So this air circulation throughout the room was an early attempt at manuscript preservation, which I super love. Also, fun fact, the word parchment comes from Pergamum. Now here's the thing. The Library of Pergamum and the Library of Alexandria were rivals. And it was a huge, huge deal. Okay, their rivalry was a huge deal. And it was it lasted for a very long time. And, um, and you know, it ended up causing the improvement of both libraries, which is good. But again, it was a very big important thing and there's actually a myth that um it's it's really interesting so again the word parchment comes from pergamum and there is this myth that um the library of alexandria that the city of alexandria um refused to export papyrus to pergamum because they were rivals with their library and so because of this the library of pergamum had to invent parchment now, this is actually a myth because parchment, we know that parchment existed for centuries beforehand. However, um, having parchment did decrease their, their dependency on the papyrus trade. So this allowed them to spread their knowledge wider and it was actually really good for them, which is interesting. Anyway, so that's the Library of Pergamum, huge rival, big deal. 
So we just took a tiny detour and we learned about how the Library of Alexandria had this rival for the affections of the knowledge gods and all of that, which is important, but let's return to our timeline. So after Julius Caesar's death, it was generally believed that he was the one who destroyed the Library of Alexandria. But if you'll remember, some of the scholars that we quoted a few minutes ago, there's a varying accounts of what actually happened. In his book, The Vanished Library, scholar Luciano Canfora interprets the evidence from ancient writers to indicate the destruction of manuscripts stored in warehouses near the port rather than the Great Library itself. This seems to be more of the general consensus. Whether Julius Caesar burned down the library itself or a warehouse where extra scrolls were housed, he did cause a lot of damage to the library somehow. Books were lost, and we can absolutely be angry at him about that, even if the damage he caused was able to be repaired, okay? We also just need to take a minute to visit our friend Strabo once more, because some of his writings from his time in Alexandria do have some interpretations that we need to discuss. Even though whatever damage Julius Caesar caused was supposedly repaired at this time, some scholars believe that you can tell from Strabo's writings that at this time, the library was clearly not the world-renowned center for learning that it had once been. But here's the thing, my friends. I mean, that's a fair interpretation, but here's the thing. Strabo doesn't actually mention the Library of Alexandria at all. No, he doesn't. As we have already discussed, he talks about the museum, and he, but he only really talks about the museum as being part of the royal palace. He does not talk about the Library of Alexandria at all. And some scholars interpret this to mean that if the Great Library was in fact attached to the museum, which we know that it has been in some way or another this whole time, then Strabo obviously felt that there was no need to mention it separately. And if he was there in 20 BC, then this is clear evidence that the library was not burned down by Julius Caesar 28 years before. So in this interpretation of the library still existing, just not as prestigiously, we have to assume that the demise of the library was not the fault of Julius Caesar. However, I'm gonna tell you how I feel about this particular interpretation. Weak, okay? It's weak. Strabo not mentioning the library, but only mentioning the museum, does not indicate that the library just wasn't as important anymore. It was the freaking Library of Alexandria, my friends. Wouldn't he have at least been like, oh yeah, I saw that library that was once a really big deal, and now it's not anymore? That's so sad. Like, wouldn't he have at least said that? Like, you think? Maybe Strabo didn't mention the library specifically because it wasn't there anymore. Because Julius Caesar burned it down. Plutarch himself said that Julius Caesar burned it down. And since when are we believing the lesser scholars over freaking Plutarch? When? When did that happen? Tell me. It's okay. I'm gonna, I'm gonna calm down. <clears throat> this is not me attempting to bend the facts to try to blame the destruction of the Library of Alexandria on Julius Caesar. Although, if I die and God tells me that it was in fact Julius Caesar, I will not be surprised and I will feel completely validated. However, let's guide me gently back down this hill that I have decided to stand on, and we're going to recap, okay? We actually don't know for sure that a fire... We do know that this fire was set by Julius Caesar during the Civil War, 
And we do know that it caused a lot of damage. But what we don't know is what kind of damage was caused. The general consensus is that it wasn't a complete loss, but I think we could also safely assume that since the library had already been in decline at this point, the damage, whatever damage the fire did cause, absolutely did not help, and it probably further contributed to the decline. Because here is the gospel truth, my friends. It would be so much easier if the myth that we have always been taught about the Library of Alexandria were true. Although painful and horribly sad, it is a lot easier to wrap our heads around one huge incident where all of this wonderful knowledge was lost. Plus, then we get to blame things on Julius Caesar. But, if you'll remember, the subtitle for this episode is, quote, The Real Story Hurts Worse. And that is because the real story hurts worse. The real story is that even though the library, or at least some of its collection, was damaged by fires and impacted by civil unrest and wars, the library itself really ceased to exist because people stopped caring. And this is something that we need to talk more about. But for now, let's talk about some better evidence that the library survived Julius Caesar. This evidence comes from the fact that the most notable producer of composite commentaries during the late 1st century BC and early 1st century AD was a scholar who worked in Alexandria named Didymus Chalcentaurus, and he is said to have produced 3,500 to 4,000 books, making him the most prolific known writer in all of antiquity. Or maybe ever? Good grief, guys. 3,500 to 4,000 books? That's insane. Okay, that's insane. This man, he was also given the name Book Forgetter because it was said that even he couldn't remember all the books he had written, which freaking makes sense. That's ridiculous. Anyway, parts of some of his commentaries have been preserved in the forms of later extracts, and these remains are modern scholars' most important sources of information about the critical works of the earlier scholars at the library. Our friend scholar Lionel Casson states that um, the output of this man, quote, would have been impossible without at least a good part of the resources of the library at his disposal. And we trust Lionel Casson because, as far as my studies have taken me, he's the only one out here spitting realistic theories. Just saying. Interestingly enough, very, very little is known about the library during the Roman period, 27 BC to 284 AD. Pretty significant amount of time. All we really know about it during this time is that it just continued to decline. Emperor Claudius, who reigned from 41 to 54 AD, is said to have built an addition, but we don't really have evidence for that. And again, we mentioned this earlier in the episode, we actually have zero archaeological evidence for the library at all. None. None of this. None. There's no archaeological evidence of the Library of Alexandria. It is gone completely. We've kind of touched on this a little bit, but overall, the fortunes of the Library of Alexandria really followed that of the city of Alexandria itself. Under Roman rule, the status of the city and the library just continued to diminish. The museum still existed, but membership was no longer granted on the basis of scholarly achievement, but rather distinction in government, military, or even athletics. 
And the same was the case with the position of head librarian. The only known head librarian from the Roman period was Tiberius Claudius Balbidilus, okay, who lived in the middle of the first century AD, and he was a politician, administrator, and military officer. And I love this. The source that I said that I found said that he had, quote, no record of substantial scholarly achievement. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that he had no record of any scholarly achievement, but um, shh. anyway, at this time, members of the museum were also no longer required to teach, they weren't required to conduct research, and they weren't even required to live in Alexandria. In fact, Philostratus says that the Emperor Hadrian, see our episode Hadrian's Wall, appointed an ethnographer and sophist as members of the museum, even though neither of them is known to have spent any significant amount of time in Alexandria. So, as you can imagine, um, this um, is kind of contributing to the, the decline here because we're just um, appointing people to a research institution who don't have to um, do research. Um, I don't really know how that works, but okay. So as the, res as the reputation of Alexandrian scholarship declined, the reputations of other libraries across the Mediterranean world greatly improved. And naturally, this just hurt the Library of Alexandria even more. Additionally, other libraries also sprang up within Alexandria itself, and it's possible that the scrolls from the Library of Alexandria may have been used to stock some of these smaller libraries. I mean, for example, there are temples in Alexandria called the Caesarium and Claudinium, and Claudianum, excuse me, and they were both known to have been major libraries by the end of the first century AD. Let's talk about the Serapium. If you'll remember, originally it was the daughter library of the Library of Alexandria, and um, classical historian Edward J. Watts says that it was probably expanded during this period. By the second century AD, the Roman Empire in general had grown less dependent on grain from Alexandria, and the city's prominence just continued to decline. I mean, it, how much further can you decline? I mean, we've been declining for forever. But anyway, the Romans had less interest in Alexandrian scholarship than ever before at this time. And this just caused the library's reputation to ju it's just diving. Okay. Scholars who worked there at this time were much less known than the scholars that had worked there during the Ptolemaic period. Eventually, the word Alexandrian itself became synonymous with the editing of texts, correction of textual errors, and the writing of commentaries synthesized from those of earlier scholars. In other words, it just came to mean monotony and lack of originality. Alexandria was no longer where you went if you were a promising scholar or academic. It was where originality went to die. Mention of both the Great Library of Alexandria and the museum stop after the middle of the first century AD. The last known references to scholars being members of the museum date to the 260s AD. In 272 AD, Emperor Aurelian fought to recapture the city of Alexandria from the forces of the Palmyrene Queen Zenobia. During the fighting, 
um, the emperor's forces destroyed the royal quarter of the city in which the main library had been located. And it is generally agreed that if the museum and the library did still exist at this time, they were almost certainly destroyed during this attack. And if they did somehow survive this attack, then whatever was left of them would have been destroyed during Emperor Diocletian's siege of Alexandria in 297. What we're saying here is that even if the library and the museum managed to survive all these things, there's no way they survived past 300 AD, essentially. So they're gone, basically. For much of the late 4th century AD, the Serapium was probably the largest collection of books in the city of Alexandria. In the 370s and 380s, it was still a major pilgrimage site for pagans, because remember, it was actually a fully functioning temple, and it also had classrooms for philosophers to teach in. Most of these philosophers were primarily interested in the um, practice of theurgy, or divine magic, the study of cultic rituals, and esoteric religious practices. There was a man by the name of Olympus who came from Cilicia, Cilicia, I don't know. I'm doing my best over here. I usually am doing my best, but I'm not great at pronunciation. Who is? Okay, let's talk about this. Have you ever in your life listened to a podcast where everybody was 100% confident in their pronunciation? If you have, keep it to yourself because that's ridiculous. Anyway, a man by the name of Olympias came to Alexandria to teach at the Serapium, and he was very enthusiastic about teaching students the rules of traditional divine worship and ancient religious practices. He enjoined students to worship the old gods in traditional ways, and he even may have taught them this practice of divine magic, which is really interesting. Scattered references in a lot of sources indicate that sometime in the 4th century, an institution known as the museum may have been reestablished somewhere in Alexandria. However, nothing is known about this organization really at all, and it may have possessed some kind of library, but whatever it may have been, there's no way that it was comparable to the original museum or library at all. Like, there's just no way. So, let's continue on to Christian Christianity. Wow, Jordan. Christianity. Okay. Under the Christian rule of Roman Emperor Theodosius I, pagan rituals were outlawed and pagan temples were destroyed. In 391 AD, the Bishop of Alexandria, Theophilus, supervised the destruction of an old Mithraeum or Temple of Mithras. The cult objects there were given to this bishop, who had them paraded through the streets to be mocked and ridiculed. As you can probably imagine, the pagans in Alexandria were not super cool with this act of desecration, especially the teachers of philosophy and theurgy at the Serapium. Therefore, these teachers took up arms and they led their students and other followers in a guerrilla attack on the Christian population of Alexandria, killing many of them before being forced to retreat. In retaliation to this, Christians vandalized and demolished the Serapium. Although some parts of the colonnade were allegedly still standing as late as the 12th century, the whole thing was destroyed when this happened in 391 AD, remember. However, this is actually good news. None of the accounts of the destruction of the Serapium mention anything about it containing a library, and sources written before the destruction speak of the collection that it did house in the past tense. 
indicating that it probably didn't have any significant collection of scrolls in it at the time of its destruction, which is really the only bit of comfort that we can take in this, to be completely honest. So we have come to a spot in our story where the museum is gone, the Library of Alexandria is gone, and the Daughter Library of Alexandria is gone, which um, basically means we've arrived at the end of this tale. The library and the museum are victims of fires and wars and all of that, yes, but they are also victims of perhaps the most terrifying thing of all, neglect. An Enlightenment skeptic by the name of Edward Gibbon thought that the Library of Alexandria was one of the greatest achievements of the classical world and that its destruction, which he concludes was due to a long and gradual process of neglect and growing ignorance, was a symbol of the barbarity that had um, overwhelmed the Roman Empire and it, it allow allowed civilization to leech away the ancient knowledge that was being re-encountered and appreciated in his own day. Now remember, Edward Gibbon is an Enlightenment skeptic, so we're talking about 1700s here. He said that the fires were major incidents in which many books were lost, but that the institution of the library itself dis disappeared more gradually, both through organizational neglect and through the gradual obsolescence of the papyrus scrolls themselves. In this interpretation, which is the widely agreed upon one, the Library of Alexandria is really more of a cautionary tale of the danger of creeping decline through underfunding, low prioritization, and the general disregard for the institutions that preserve and share knowledge, libraries, and archives. Today, we have to remember that war is not the only way that an Alexandria can be destroyed. There's obviously a long history of attacks on knowledge that include deliberate violence, we have the Holocaust, we have China's Cultural Revolution, but we also have to remember that these in kinds of institutions can also be destroyed just by willful deprioritization of support, which we're witnessing on across Western societies today. There was a French critic by the name of Jack Derrida who said, quote, there is no political power without power over the archive. I'm going to repeat that. There is no political power without power over the archive. This is the other reason that I opened this episode with my some of my best memories with books. Because we cannot take knowledge and our access to it for granted. We just can't. We can't do it, my friends. And even the newest and most advanced libraries or archives or whatever need to be treasured and respected if the knowledge that they contain is to survive. Now, I don't want to leave us in a sad place. And I actually don't have to, though, because you may or may not know this, but the Library of Alexandria is not completely lost to us. And this is because, my friends, it continues to exist today in the form of a new institu institution dedicated to learning. Yes, you heard that correctly. The Library of Alexandria lives again. The idea of reviving the ancient Library of Alexandria 
was first proposed in 1974, when Lotfi Dawadar was the president of the University of Alexandria. In May of 1986, the Egyptian government requested the executive board of UNESCO to conduct a feasibility study on the project of building a new library of Alexandria. And this is when UNESCO and just the international community began to be involved in trying to bring this project forward. Starting in 1988, UNESCO and the UNDP, United Nations Development Program, worked to support an international architectural competition to design the library. This competition took place in 1989, and the Norwegian architectural firm Snowheda won the competition. Can you even imagine getting the opportunity to design the new Library of Alexandria? It's blowing my brain apart. That is so cool. So Egypt devoted four hectares of land for the building of the library and also established the National High Commission for the Library of Alexandria. At the time, Egyptian President Hosni Mubarak also took personal interest in this project, which greatly contributed to its advancement. And the new Library of Alexandria was completed in 2002. And it is actually called the Bibliotheca Alexandrina. And it functions as a modern library and cultural center commemorating the original Library of Alexandria 2000 years later. As is only good and right, considering everything, this modern institution has a focus on storing and preserving digital information. It has a huge server farm committed to this. And also in line with the mission of the ancient library of Alexandria, the Bibliotheca Alexandrina also houses the International School of Information Science, which is a school for students preparing for highly specialized postgraduate degrees whose goal it is to train professional staff for libraries in Egypt and across the Middle East. So the long story short of it is that there is a new library of Alexandria and it's working to preserve information and to train people who know how to preserve information. And that is so incredibly beautiful. It almost makes me emotional. In fact, it does make me a little emotional. I am not sure how many of you know of about who Carl Sagan is or about his television show Cosmos, but this television show first aired in 1980 and the pilot episode talked about our old friend, the Library of Alexandria. Probably without meaning to, Carl Sagan talked about the loss of the library in this great fire and he lamented the most infamous burning of books in history. He told his viewers that if he could travel back in time, it would be to visit the Library of Alexandria because, quote, all the knowledge in the ancient world was within those marble walls. Carl Stegen stood in this line of people who, for hundreds and hundreds of years, have made the word Alexandria conjure up just this image of a burning library. For a long time, Alexandria has become shorthand for the triumph of ignorance over the very essence of civilization. Alexandria has for a very long time been a reference point for the subsequent destruction of libraries and archives. The destruction of the library was, Carl Sagan said, a warning to us 1600 years later, quote, we must never let it happen again. 
And I think, my friends, that that is the true lesson to be learned from the life of the Library of Alexandria, whether it was burned in one horrible day or declined slowly over hundreds of years. Because either way, we must never let this happen again. Either way, knowledge and the pursuit of it was irreparably damaged. And I spoke a teeny bit earlier about how neglect is really the more terrifying cause of destruction. And I stand by that because we are constantly seeing this in our world today. If you take anything away from this episode, please, please, please remember to treasure knowledge and your access to it. This is another reason why I shared, why I opened this by sharing some of my memories. Because it's just, I don't know how to say how important it is, okay? Remember to always seek to keep learning. And please, please, please read to your children. Take them to the bookstore. Take them to the library. Have books in your home, no matter what your family looks like. My house is overflowing with books, even though it's just Duncan and me, and I cannot wait to get more. I'm fantasizing about where to put my next bookshelf, okay? Remember that we all have a part to play in how knowledge and learning are seen and treated in the coming years. Take inspiration from the fact that we may have lost this ancient library, but a brand new one full of scholars exists today in Alexandria, which is so incredibly beautiful. And perhaps even better than that, a lot of us have access to a library. A lot of us have access to information very close by. So I encourage you to access that information, to read a book, and to help those around you do the same. I'm really grateful that we were able to do this episode today. It didn't end up being as long as I thought, which is okay, because again, it's a pretty sad story, but I hope that I was able to leave you off on a more inspiring note because I think that even though this great library was destroyed somehow, decline or fire, whatever, even though this is a very sad story, I want us to take inspiration from it. I want us to remember that there is a new library there, that knowledge doesn't have to be lost and that we all have a part to play in that process of preserving knowledge. So thank you for being here with me today, for learning more about the Library of Alexandria. It's always fun to hang out with you guys, and I really, really appreciate it. You can give me a follow on Instagram at notstrictlyhistory underscore podcast. You can also send me a Gmail at um, notstrictlyhistory at gmail.com. And if you're feeling incredibly generous, I have actually activated listener support on my podcast. Anyway, again, I love you guys so much, and I'm just happy that you are here with me every week and that we get to talk about so many wonderful things. I love you so much, and we will see you next time on Not Strictly History. Mm-hmm.